0: This episode is sponsored by World Anvil. World Anvil is an award-winning world-building and writing software for people who love to create rich and exciting worlds.
1: Hey, Dungeon Crawler. Thanks for tuning in to our episode this week. But guess what? Did you know there's even more that you could be listening to? If you head over to our Patreon, you can get access to behind-the-scenes content, hearing more of the discussion before and after the show, and even comments in the middle that didn't make it into the final cut. Thank you so much for your support, and keep being great. This is Daniel. And this is Krebs. This is Alton. And I am Mattai.
2: And you're listening to Dungeon Crawler's Radio, the greatest geek podcast out there. All right, everyone, and welcome back to Dungeon Crawler's Radio. We love having you here. Today, we have an extraordinary guest. One who is of a flavor that I'm not sure we've ever had on the show before.
1: He I is, don't make it a habit to taste our guests personally.
2: But all of our guests have great taste. Now, oh, that's <laughs> evidence for
1: the fact that they're on our show.
2: <laughs> uh, awesome. I And I am super excited to introduce you to this guest. But first, Crawlers, just real fast. Can we touch base on the whole crawl charity event thing? Can we talk about that really Wait, quick? Did you just say crawl You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. You know, I think it is time to talk about the crawl charity event. As of the recording of this episode, we are 10 days away. By the time you hear it, it's going to be somewhere between uh, 7 and 5. This, it was given us to know,
3: that
1: there oh. is a crueltyment charity event happening July 29th. And if you didn't understand the reference, that just means you need to be there even more. Uh, We're yes. raising money for Primary Children's, but you know, one of the people on this show, it's difficult to guess who has a a deep love of the 1983 film that wasn't Return of the Jedi, beloved sci-fi classic, Kroll. We've gotten the licensing to be able to show it. We've teamed up with Jordan Commons and with Primary Children's Hospital to be able to raise some money for them. We're really looking forward to doing it, so make sure to come check us out.
2: And I want to say a very special thank you to those who have already donated, both those who intend to attend the event and those who... Could not make it, but gave generously anyway. Primary Children's Hospital is amazing, and it is our great fortune and honor that we get to raise money for them. So thank you for that. And guys, can I announce something for the first time? Ooh, oh, yes, please I love do. secrets. I, I made a small investment, and I spent some time, I spent I spent just under a week taking the film from the Blu-ray transfer and remastering it using AI-powered software. And what I can tell you, what I can tell you is that this is possibly the best Kroll has ever visually appeared. And that's coming from the guy who watches it at least once a year, right? Can't wait to see that on the big screen. So this will potentially be the most beautiful version of Kroll your eyes have ever beheld.
1: I'm really looking forward to it. Dungeon Crawlers, you should be looking forward to it too. So right now take a pause go over to tinyurl.com slash you're making a donation directly to primary children's hospital all the instructions are there you can get your seats reserved and come join us and your other fellow dungeon crawlers in support of a good cause and a fantastic anniversary but absolutely today, i think we have a guest is that right josh we do have a
2: guest we have accomplished microbiologist and fantasy author dr jeffrey gardner
3: Hey! No, wait, wait a second, Doctor Gardner. You're a microbiologist.
0: That's true. Well, wow, you're you're a lot bigger than I expected. <laughs> I'm also a uh, smash at uh, cocktail parties because I'm always cultured.
3: Whoa!
1: <laughs> I'm here for oh, it. Sting. Uh, I think we're gonna gel. Oh. <laughs> I, that may be a little bit above the curve for most people. It's okay. We don't have to continue on that. <laughs> but Dr. Gardner, it is such a pleasure to have you out this evening.
0: Likewise. I really appreciate the the chance to talk.
1: <laughs> so Dr. Gardner has written this beautiful book. If you uh, go and take a look for it, I know he, he even cracked the joke at the beginning. It sounds a little bit like a self-help book. But in fact, it is a beautiful fantasy novel. Jeffrey, what... Is it about? Give us the high-level synopsis.
0: Sure. So there's there's two levels. The big story is there is um, uh, a group of characters that are uh, chasing after a, a wizard that's that's done wrong. And the story is told from the perspective of two characters, Thorn and Carleon. So Thorn is a wizard that's kind of going through a midlife crisis. He's made a lot of mistakes and now has rubbed the the ruling mage council the wrong way and so he's punished and now he's trying to undo this punishment and he has to basically go find someone that is of value to the mage council and at that point he meets up with the the second point of view character that's Carleon and Carleon is uh, he's a young man, he's in his very early 20s and he used to be a knight uh, but again made some mistakes, got kicked out of the knighthood and now he's barely scraping by as a mercenary and so thorn hires some mercenaries to go find this missing person and over the course of this search they realize that the the missing person uh was the victim of a conspiracy and what's troubling to thorn is that this conspiracy uh might have been perpetrated by people he knows and mm-hmm. so then the story kind of kicks into high gear and that's it's a chase chasing down clues and perhaps some of thorn's old rivals and trying to figure out Why is this Missing Mage important? What are they trying to do? And is there something that Thorne and Carly can do to stop it?
1: I absolutely love it. And, you know, writing a novel is like a huge accomplishment first off. So kudos to you on that. Big time. The big question that I have from that, though, is like, where did the foundation for this story come from? Is this something that's been in your head for a long time? Did it seem to write itself? Or is it something that you've had to plot out over time? Like, what what was the path for you for this book to come into existence?
0: No, that's a great question. And so uh, hopefully the answer is not too convoluted, but I've always been a writer. And so I got my first rejection letter for a story I submitted when I was 11. Congratulations. For a magazine called Highlights. <laughs> yeah. And I still oh, had it. We know highlights. Uh,
3: Way no highlights. Uh, highlights for yeah. children. Ah, okay.
0: Ah. Highlights for children was my first rejection letter when I was eleven, uh, and I still have that letter. And I all I've done is collect rejection letters, uh, you know, ever since. And so all of the the usual suspects: so Magazine of science fiction and fantasy, um, Asimov's, Realms of Fantasy, mm-hmm. Dragon magazine, back when it was still in print, mm-hmm. uh, and not the the online iteration it is now. Um, But I've kept all those rejection letters because that's, you know, every writer's got their own journey. And so that was really what I'm talking about is stuff that was when I was in middle school, high school, early college. Um, And then there was kind of a transition where I stopped writing because then, you know, I went from uh, my undergraduate degree, I went to the University of Wisconsin and then went to graduate school for a PhD in microbiology. Then I got a postdoc, then I got a faculty position out on the East Coast. And so for 15 years or so, I didn't write anything creative. I was really focused on technical writing but then a couple things changed i got tenure at my university so i went from assistant professor to associate professor and my first child was born for folks that have kids they know that that infant child care is, is really kind of a, a cycle and so you know baby wakes up baby's hungry feed the baby change the baby baby falls asleep and that's that's really kind of the the two hour cycles and that just goes on forever hmm. and so during those <laughs> those brief baby feedings and baby naps, um, I started thinking about some of my old stories again, some of the stuff that I was writing and, and the ideas that I had. And I thought, well, what if I did things this way? And so then I wrote a couple notes down in my old writing journal. And those couple of notes became a couple pages. And then a couple would out to be chapters. And I realized over the course of this paternity leave, I had actually written enough that I thought would be a decent outline for a story. So the 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 kernels of ideas came from the old stories that I had written in high school and early college but ultimately the the book is what my was my attempt at writing the or reading the story that i had always wanted so i figured you know the 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 kind of the cliche quote is um you know the perfect book or the book that you love the most it hasn't been written yet so go write it yourself that's what i tried to do and so now having written it i read it again and i'm very proud of it and I'm, i'm happy with the story overall but it's kind of like the the Leonardo da Vinci quote, art is never complete. It is abandoned. So it's a complete story. It is done. It's done. But now going back and rereading it, I'm thinking, boy, I, I, the, the exact same criticisms I had of other people's work, I have now of my own. I said, this conversation would have been better if I had done something else, or this bit of magic would have been more interesting if I tweaked it just a little bit. And so, you know, that's what my, my new project is, is, is trying to take those ideas of the things that I thought was interesting or that I could fix for this first novel and then incorporating into another, another story. So that's about a roundabout answer, but I think that's at the core of what you were asking.
2: Yeah. You said myriad wonderful things back there. The thing that, that keeps bouncing around inside my head is when you said every author's journey is different. Right. And, uh, and so from the time that you returned to your writing to when you got it published, what was that? how, How long was that window of time? Uh,
0: a year and a half to two years. And so in in terms of when I committed to saying, I'm going to have this be a novel, write the novel, have it go through beta readers and revisions, and then submit for publication and actually sign a contract, uh, it was two years. Awesome. And then which publishing partner did you end up with? So this is actually, uh, I think, fairly unique. So I published with an academic press. So it is um, Loyola University of Maryland's Apprentice House Press. And so this is a a press that most people have never heard of because it publishes predominantly literary fiction and it is um, an undergraduate-run publishing house. So what does that mean? So you you could call it an academic press. You could call it a training press. What it is is that there are a handful of professionals at the university and they teach these classes on marketing and editing and book production manuscripts are submitted to the university there is a class where they read and rank manuscripts and then they offer publishing contracts to about 10% and Very so I was cool. lucky enough to get one of the one of the 10% slots and then for the remaining academic year you go through the editing process so developmental copy line develop a cover and then uh, at the end of the semester you get the the arts and then you go through final edits and then in the the spring of the next uh semester it is it is published so it is kind of a symbiotic relationship in that i'm learning to be a book writer all of the staff at apprentice house press are undergraduate students learning how to be novel editors or um publishers i think that appealed to me again as an as a, as a academic in my day job because it's training kind of the next generation of that that job. Most most students would say, here's a portfolio I did for some class. The students from Apprentice House can say, here's the book that I helped publish. And I made a, prod, a product you can buy on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or bookshop.org. And I took it all the way through from, from concept to something you can hold in your hand. And so I think that is actually a really neat journey for both me as an author and then also for the the student editors of of Apprentice House.
3: That's awesome. Very cool. That's incredible. You mentioned uh, choosing a cover and things like that. And a lot of uh, authors have talked recently about the process of finding a really good artist and going from concept to the actual art that makes it onto the cover. What was that process like for you? Do you have a lot of uh, control over that? And uh, who did you end up going with?
0: So uh, the art on the, the cover was done in-house by Apprentice House. So that was all done by the uh, student staff at Apprentice House. Um, so so in terms of you know, having to farm it out, we didn't have to. It was all right there. In terms of the amount of input I had, I had more than I think a lot of people would going traditional. Again, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not speaking about the independent route where you have Total control for folks that uh, go through traditional publishing, they have zero control. So I'm somewhere in the middle. The actual final design, apprentice had had control over, but I was able to make suggestions, and, and they were actually taken, which was uh, was neat to see.
1: Mm. And and that cover design, by the way, is absolutely gorgeous. If you if you haven't pulled it up yet, crawlers like Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, like you said, it's available through all the major retailers and websites, when you see the cover, you're going to see exactly why we're so excited about this. And it's good to know that you had a higher degree of control, or at least input around that as well. Even with it being a learning process, I like that idea of being able to give back. It's one of the things that we're trying to do with a lot of our community outreach this year. Um, But how was the process of working with some of these students? Did you find that there were opportunities to to step in and, and help guide them? Or did you find that for the most part it was a fairly intuitive easy to work through process
0: i'd say it's, it's the latter i think the thing that was interesting is something that was kind of um it, it parallels the story and that in that the story is again about kind of an, an old wizard and kind of a young knight or a young mercenary and how they view the world is very different when you're when you're young you've you've got a very different perspective than when you're you're older and so in terms of character interactions, that was something that I think was really interesting with the editors because the, the comments and the feedback I'd be getting from them is, somebody in their 20 would not say or do that. And against mm. as somebody in their 40s, trying to write someone in their 20s, that actually was really valuable um, mm. because I don't always get the youngs, and so trying to figure that out was really, really helpful.
1: Very cool. It's okay, I don't always get them either. So, <laughs> um. <laughs> A lot of us have tried writing at one point or another.
2: I'm sure many of our audience members have. And only some of us get to the point where we publish anything or that we feel really proud of what we've of what we done. At what point did you realize that your story was going to have broad appeal, the kind of broad appeal that necessitates
0: publication? Like, at what point did you say, hey, I've really got something here? After the third time I made my wife read it and she said, you know what, now I don't hate it.
3: <laughs> there
0: you go. They always tell you don't let friends and family read your stuff because they'll always give you positive feedback and not the critical stuff that you really need to, to be better. And by and large I would agree with that, but I am fortunate um in that I told my wife not to do that when she read it through the first time. And she actually took that to heart. And she said, here is all the reasons why your book sucks. And this is how <laughs> I would fix it. She is a voracious reader and really per- uh, perceptive in terms of kind of story and character. So mm. when she said this wasn't working, I listened. Um, and that actually mm-hmm. probably made the edits from the developmental editor much less. Mm-hmm. So
1: this is where, like, I have maybe a more or more technical... Question: You don't have to divulge your individual secrets unless you want to, but I am very curious. Like, how did you go about managing this type of project? Were you logging something in a spreadsheet? Were you working in a Google Doc? Were you working with a project manager of some type? Like, what, what was that process like for you?
0: Absolutely. So I can talk about kind of the, the time management and then the actual process itself. I am a so versus the 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 panther versus the plotter. I'm I'm a hundred percent plotter. So. What I had was a detailed outline, was which was maybe five single-space pages. It went chapter yeah. by chapter. Here are the plot beats. Here's the beginning, middle, and end. So in terms of um, the, the detailed outline, I knew where the story was going to start, where it was going to end, and I had every plot beat figured out. And so in terms of, of writing, it was more just taking that outline and then fleshing it out. So that complete synopsis was basically version zero. And mm-hmm. then from that, I could take, okay, the chapter one paragraph that was the outline and then flesh that out to a full chapter. And then I just kind of expanded each chapter. And I was very workman. Like I went from chapter one and just worked all the way through. I know some authors like to jump around and do the exciting bits first, all the action, and then kind of backfill all of the descriptive chapters. Uh, I just wanted to start to finish all the way through. And then the version number went up one and then went through um, the revisions that way. In terms of kind of keeping track of my writing, all I did was just pull up my... Uh, calendar. And I just track the number of words that I put in per day. I would consider a good day was 500 words, a great day was 1000 words. And then, you know, uh, a ridiculously good day would be anything above above that.
1: I, I absolutely love where you're coming from. Because like, a lot of people can overcomplicate a process like this. But at the same time, being able to have a record and a plan and like a path to completion, for many, many people is absolutely a necessary part of the process. Um, And even like as you're building businesses and and things like that, like there's the phrase that if you can't track it, you can't see it. And if you can't see it, you can't do anything about it. (laughs) Right. And so hearing that you were built out a lot of those systems is, is fantastic. And uh, for our dungeon crawlers at home, if you've already got a system that works for you, awesome. But if not, we have some excellent sponsors who are part of our show. And we're just going to take a quick minute to show you a little bit of what they do. So thank you very much for listening to help support us. And we'll be back with you in just a moment.
3: Now let's talk about our sponsor, World Anvil. World Anvil is an award-winning world-building and writing software for people who like to create rich and exciting worlds. With their software, you can create your world, manage your campaign, plan your novel, and wow your players or readers as you make your worlds come to life. You can find them at worldanvil.com, and if you put in the discount code DCR40, you will receive a 40% discount today.
2: Crawlers, we have an incredible opportunity to do some good. In celebration of the 40th anniversary of Crawl, we are holding the crawl charity event. On July 29th, we will be gathering at the Jordan Commons Megaplex in Sandy to gawk at some collectibles, watch the film as a community, and raise some much-needed funds for Primary Children's Hospital in Utah. For more details, keep an eye on our socials or visit
1: DungeonCrawlersRadio.com. Hey, Dungeon Crawlers, welcome back. Thank you so much. You know, those sponsors really help us grow, and we're grateful that that they're here to support us just the same way that you are, too. You know, and I had an experience uh, shopping the other day, I uh, had
3: gotten this sweater, and it kept picking up static electricity. So I was able to take it back to the store, and they gave me a new one, free of charge. Uh, (laughs) Oh, Matthew, even (laughs) I'm (laughs) shocked that you went with that show. (laughs) I feel thoroughly fleeced. (laughs) I'm just trying to be a card
2: again. And here you are. We have an author on the show and he is spitting us this beautiful yarn and you had to (laughs) interact with that. Well, we'll knit it all together somehow. Oh, crochet, crochet. Crochet, crochet.
1: Yeah, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) I did not expect that. Well, Uh,
3: I I actually do have a question for our friend Jeffrey here. Uh, You mentioned that there's alchemy and a magic system in your your book, and those are always so fun. Those are often the hook that gets people into uh, somebody's story. So can you describe for us what's cool about your magic system? How does it work?
0: No, that That's a great question. So I'll talk about not what's cool, but what is is not cool. But it's, it's interesting to me. And so hopefully by the end of my, my answer, that'll make sense. So the I wanted to do something that was at least uncommon to me. So in, in terms of reading lots of magic um, systems for, for stories, it seems like the most common thing is if you want to be a magic user, you have to study something for a long time, a text, a scroll, um, some type of... of system and if you use it too much you get tired and you you fatigue and you have to rest and so that i didn't want that at all for 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 my magic system i wanted something worse per se and so <laughs> I, I love I it think what's unique about my magic system or or again uncommon again it's not unheard of i've seen this before but what i wanted it to be rare and put my spin on it is the idea that it is lousy to be a magic user it is not cool to be a wizard and in in the story that i've created the ability to use magic is a debilitating chronic and ultimately fatal disease mm. and so the idea is that if you can use magic and this is getting kind of into my, my technical background the idea is that the arcane energy starts to erode the nerves so the nervous system of the person such that they lose their five senses so over the course of a mage's life they will lose their sight their smell their taste their hearing mm-hmm. their sense of touch and ultimately it will kill them to be a wizard in in the story is a fatal outcome in in the story thorn has uh, his sense of taste and smell gone given enough time his vision will go his his hearing will go and then it, it will it will kill him and so there's two classes of, of wizards in in the story there are those that are born into to magic and to me that's kind of the sad class they are bored with the ability to use this magic but it's automatically already eroding their senses even as as children so they have to learn how to use magic hardest it and survive basically as long as they can so that's the sad class of wizard. then there are the wizards that choose to have their mind unlocked to magic anyone can choose to use magic they can become a wizard but very very few do because of that disease or that outcome how mm-hmm. is your life constructed that your life is so bad where you're thinking no being a wizard is better knowing i'm going to lose my five senses and it's going to kill me and again this isn't a spoiler Ford is one of those people he is not a born wizard he chose to do this to himself how is his life so messed up that he wants to be a wizard to be able to use magic but it's going to kill him eventually so
2: that 's fascinating, by the way, because I agree with you. I think it 's kind of tropish the idea that like you have this inherent ability and it makes you very sleepy, but with some study and some practice you 'll be fine right <laughs> um, I like that there is a, a massive cost to it out of curiosity, if you have someone in your system, if you have someone who can use magic and they they completely abstain they 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 lead a magic celibate life. From the point that they stop using magic until the day they die, will that erosion effect halt?
0: Or is it always slowly eating away the user, even if they don't utilize it? It is always there and it is slowed and not stopped. And that actually is a plot point later uh, in, in the story. So even if you, in or in your case, if you choose to abstain it's still a ticking time bomb but you might have a few more ticks on the clock but it never goes away
2: i love that actually we talk on the show quite a bit about the value of jeopardy in mm-hmm. a story or in a game setting you know it and and what this does is that it makes the magic system both a tool of the protagonist but it makes the magic itself an antagonist an additional enemy that you know the hero must worry about that is a fascinating approach good on you for coming up with
0: that
1: yeah Crawlers, if you want a shortcut to make your system m- more impactful and important, whether it's to a player or to a reader, a listener, exactly what Jeff, Jeffrey just put out. Like, think about the way that it's going to impact your users on a day-to-day basis. And that doesn't always necessarily mean that it has to be a negative detriment, but thinking about the way that access to that level of power impacts the mind the body the spirit the social circles the financial circles and capability what do resources mean like choosing even one or two of those facets facets to spin up is going to generate instant results for your characters now sort of like a tandem to the magic system as we
2: were talking before the show went live um you mentioned something about rhythmic gymnastics
0: <laughs>
2: and, <laughs> and and it was not metaphoric. It was it was not a euphemism. Can you can you tell us how what role this plays in your story?
0: Yeah, so I planted this scene because I've always wanted to talk about it because I think it's a, it's it's interesting and clever to me and probably only to me after I share it, but but here it goes. One of Thorne's weapons, if you want to call it that. Is they're the cult energy whips or energy ribbons. And so Thorne yeah. has got two of them and he can use them like Indiana Jones style whips to manipulate items, but he can also <sighs> use them as cutting implements as mm. weapons. And so the idea that I came from that came from watching the Olympics many years ago. And it was I was watching a woman uh do the rhythmic gymnastics and her or object item i'm not quite sure what the, what the term is was was the, uh, a baton with a long ribbon on it and so you take the baton and you can twirl it and throw it around and catch it and it was these very graceful arcs and the magenta ribbon it was a it was a red magenta ribbon and I, for me that was such a striking image and i thought boy that would be really cool if that ribbon was somehow dangerous and now she had to not only manipulate the the wand and the ribbon and wheel around her body, not hurt herself, but what if she could actually strike with that or grab something with that and have it be an offensive type weapon. And so, that, yeah, that was a cool idea for, you know, an adolescent little boy, but it always struck with me. And it always, and it always stuck. And I think, man, I want to do something with that. And so in a later part of the novel, Thorn has these these energy whips and these energy ribbons, um, and he's able to go, you know, do some, some fighting stuff with that. Um, but that image of this graceful style of fighting with this flowing ribbon whip-like thing always struck me as a cool image. And so that's why I wanted to have that in, in the story.
2: I like your impetus to like take things that we often take for granted as and things that we often hold as just like beautiful or graceful and now you've weaponized it in some way. <laughs> just like, and I mean that sincerely, like your magic system is the same thing. We often look at magic as this ethereal, graceful, beyond the the corporeal, you know. We look at magic as this beautiful thing um, and you've made it a cancer, if I can use that term Without hurting too many feelings, you've made it cancerous to the user, which I think is really brilliant. And then you've taken something like rhythmic, gymnastic, uh, ribbon dancing, and now it's a martial art. That's this is so fantastic. This is so fascinating. This for me, this is right up there with like Frank Herbert's concept of um, the weirding way you know, that (laughs) you can take, you can take sounds and vibrations and you can turn them into kinetic force. And my name is a killing word, you know, that sort of concept that this is fascinating. What is the rough word count page count size of your book, The
0: Path from Regret? So it is 106,000 words. So it's it's very much within the average of a Hennessy story. I am so glad you said words and not pages. I am,
2: I am, you were about to pull a Robert Jordan on me there for a second and I was
0: going to freak out. (laughs) No, no, no. Because with pages, with you have the ebook or the hardcover or the paperback, the page counts are all different. They're all different. Regardless of versions, it's all 106,000 words. So that's, that's how I track it. And, and in terms of thinking about, you know, what is the standard for, uh, standard for an average fantasy novel, not a Sanderson or a Jordan or, you know, <laughs> uh, a, a, a Stephen King, right? You know, where you can have the door doorstoppers, um, you know, an average fantasy novel is 100 or 125,000 words, right? Okay. So that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah. And it sounded like
2: you were alluding to the idea that there's going to be a follow-up to our Path from
0: Regret. So what can you tell us about the future of the series? I, the, the future is the past. So the <laughs> the follow-up project is going to be... Um, not a prequel, but a story that takes place earlier in the timeline. And so the idea is that in The Path from Regret, one of the mercenary characters tells a story uh, about how his wife was kidnapped by a wizard and his quest essentially to recover his wife and and, and how he and Thorne uh, meet. So it takes place about Twenty years before the Path from Regret and it's the the meeting of this mercenary character and, and Thorne and how Thor is able to, to help this mercenary recover his his wife from this, this kidnapping. Very awesome. Cool. And in your
2: head, how many books do you already see encompassing the entirety of this adventure? Four nice nice
0: so it's gonna be so i don't want it to be drawn out i've got and so the again the idea is that i want it to be decades of Thorne's life so basically the path from regret is when thorn is in his 40s um then and so i'm 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 doing this completely wrong so for anyone listening don't don't do what i'm doing because it's the <laughs> four book idea i wrote book three first way to go george lucas go ahead i know <laughs> lucas did four five and six first so so uh the path from regret is is, is Thorn in his forties. And so the 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 story arc is gonna start with the project that I'm working on now, which is Thorne in his twenties, then there's gonna be Thorn in his thirties, and then the last story will be Thorn in his fifties, and that's gonna be the end. The Not necessarily he's saying he's gonna he's gonna die in his fifties, but his story will be told and complete by the time he's in his fifties. So each book represents essentially a major landmark or a major event in Thorne's life throughout his decades. Very cool.
1: Nice. Okay, Dr. Gardner. Here, we're starting to get towards the end of the night. So, All right. I just want to give you a warning of what is about to come your direction, okay? <laughs> when we bring right. guests onto the show, especially if it's the first time that they've been on We tend to do a lightning round of questions hosted by the one and only Josh Krebs over there. Now, these should be off-the-cuff answers coming from your gut. But beyond that, I'm going to hand it to him to talk about. Yes,
2: absolutely. Please don't feel any pressure. I'm going to ask you some questions. I just want the first answer off the top of your head. You ready? Got it. Welcome to the lightning round, author and microbiologist Jeffrey Gardner. Here we go. What is your favorite color? You have children, but do you have pets? Do not have pets. Ooh, are you a pet guy at all, or is that just like a no-no thing? I'm a cat person. Nice, nice. It's super rainy outside, you're drenched, you put on nice warm clothing when you get home. What's the first thing you eat? Ice cream. (laughs) And then finally, what is your stance on the 1983
0: sci-fi fantasy film Kroll? It is good. But for my money, I prefer the 1984 film, The Last Starfighter. Oh,
1: Ooh. that's a great answer! It's a fantastic answer. That's a great, great movie. answer. I respect that answer thoroughly. That one will <laughs> make the supercut for sure.
2: That will make the supercut. <laughs> did you see? Did you see Last Starfighter in theaters when
0: you were a kid? No, unfortunately, I was six. <laughs> At the time, um, so, <laughs> you said that like it was a little bit old. <laughs> no, I was, a, I was a little bit older. Um, so same, same thing when uh, back when, when VHS was king, saw Crawl, saw Last Starfighter, saw all of those Good man. early Good man. 80s movies. That was those during the, the VHS days. Heck yes, VHS!
1: <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time this evening. Dr. Jeffrey Gardner has been with us. His new book, The Path from Regret. If you look it up, it's available at all the major uh, online sellers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, bookshop.org. If you look it up, you're going to see that it's a novel by J.G. Gardner. Don't be surprised. He just doesn't want to be known by his father's name or something. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But, uh, (laughs) you know, it's a beautiful book. You're going to love it the moment you see it. As soon as you read that synopsis, I guarantee you're going to be hooked. Make sure to go and pick it up. Check it out with that Josh, I'm going to hand it back to you to take us out for the night.
2: Absolutely. And, and lest I forget, I, I don't know, I, I don't think you mentioned this, Elton, but um, if you want to go to uh, Dr. Gardner's website to see all of his work, you want to go to jgardnerauthor.com. That's J, the letter, Gardner, like the occupation, author, like the dream, dot com. Jeffrey Gardner, thank you so very much for being on the show. You were a delight. We really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you had a wonderful time, too. I did. This was great. Thank you. Absolutely. And
1: with that, we're out of here. And dungeon crawlers, tell your story, whatever may come. And to all my little nerdlings and full-size
3: microbiologists, always remember to let your geek flag fly. So
2: say we all. And whether you are just a regular normie or you are slowly dying from your immense magical power, always remember to be epic and don't suck.
1: Remember, the force
2: will be with you always.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find us.